watch said seven. Now it's 18. We are on a heat wave. <laughs> if I were to um, ask you to think about your childhood, like just think about your childhood, what pictures pop up in your mind? Would they in involve um, maybe a picture of your favorite outfit or, or a piece of clothing? Would they involve an activity or something that you're doing? Um, would they involve a specific food or type of food? Or is there a smell that you can smell when you're thinking about that picture? Does it involve a certain teacher or coach or family member? Maybe it's a specific vacation. Does it involve a faith community? Does it involve church or does it not involve church? And if it involves church, are there any specific uh, thoughts or pictures that pop into your head when I say church? For me, there's lots of random pictures that sort of pop up when I think about this. One is when I was in fifth grade, um, my teacher used to read to us after recess. Random. Um, I also can picture myself in purple, tough skin jeans. And the tough skins were before Levi's and they were the cool thing to wear, right? I remember my gym teacher's yearly obstacle course, which was super fun in gym. I remember running through the woods, checking out if my new sneakers actually made me run faster because they were new. And I remember I learned how to figure out how much time we had left in church based on the Book of Common Prayer, I would check off each segment and count backwards. I asked my sister the same question about church specifically, and I said, what do you remember about church? She said, well, I remember there was a kid in Sunday school who had four fingers on each hand, and I learned that puce was a color. I'm like, wow, you had great teachers, huh? I asked my husband, um, and he remembers that uh, once when he was looking up at the stained glass window of Jesus turning over the tables um, in the midst of a sermon where everyone was quietly listening to the priest, he says very loudly, you know, Jesus, you're ugly when you're mad. Now, he wanted me to make sure that you knew he was three at the time. I'm sure you had all these pictures pop up in your own mind. Some good, some bad. Um, these pictures are the events that happened to you. They're the things that shape you and contribute to how you see yourself today. But are these pictures accurate? If you were to reminisce with somebody in that exact time, would they be the same? Last week, uh, Tanya and I passed out these new Bibles to our CC kids, and uh, they are very, they are a graphic novel sort of action Bibles, what they're called, and they're the real scriptures, but they sort of use bubbles out of these really great pictures so that the characters are saying something, and once we had to get through the front cover that had like six different pictures, and they wanted to know what each story meant, we finally got to the story of the boy in the temple. And it's the story of uh, Mary and Joseph leaving Jerusalem and then realizing that Jesus is not with them. So they go back to the temple and they find Jesus. And he says, I was in my father's house. So after the lesson, which we do every single week, um, I always ask the kids, so 
What is God saying to you? Is there a picture in your head that is shaping this story? Is there a picture that is popping up? Is God saying something to you? And uh, one of the responses really stood out to me, and it's the jumping point off of our sermon today. It's this. Did Jesus know that he was special? In other words, did Jesus know who he was? What was his picture of himself? So our sermon title today is Growing Up With Jesus, and I want to explore this question and how this very question gives us a sense of direction. Would you please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Luke? In Luke, we're reading about Jesus coming to uh, the Jordan River to come to his cousin, John the Baptist, uh, as he's baptizing people. And it's, baptism at this time is a rite of purification and act of obedience. So one day Jesus comes, and while John is baptizing, a dove descends from heaven, and God's voice is heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days. And when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him alone. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple saying, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And on his hands, they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished his test, every test, he departed from him until an opportune time came. Father, this morning we come to you listening to your word, knowing that your word brings life and has life in it. It is um, how we are going to think about our own pictures this morning. So God, transform what you're saying to us. Allow us to hear you throughout the worship, throughout prayer, throughout this, uh, this time. Let us put on listening ears. Let us be open to your transforming uh, power. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So let's go back to this question, did Jesus know who he was? Now, when Jesus shows up to the Jordan River to be baptized, uh, Luke's gospel gives us this picture. It's meant to give us this picture of heaven and earth coming together in one. Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of Man, together both, right? And he hears God's affirming voice, his Father's affirming voice, saying, you are my Son. This forms Jesus' self-understanding of who um, he is in relationship to God the Father. When Jesus goes to be baptized, it's it's not because he's sinful, it's so he can identify with humanity. In a way, this is a, it's a picture 
of Jesus coming from the Jordan River and making his way up through the wilderness as though he's experiencing for us what wilderness means, that separation from life or separation from sustenance, right? It's the wilderness, the barrenness that we all face in humanity. But Jesus is coming to walk through this wilderness in a different way. He's coming to face the tempter and to overcome him. So Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days with nothing, ate nothing, but with water to survive. Then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell the stone to become a loaf of bread. It's so clever. The devil goes right after what Jesus needs most, what he's experiencing the most clearly. And he says, Jesus, are you sure you have the right picture of yourself? Are you sure you know who you are? This strikes right at the heart of Jesus' integrity and his calling. It's, it's, you know, he's saying, if you are God, then why are you hungry? Do gods get hungry? So if you're hungry, are you sure you have the right picture? And if you are hungry, don't you have the power to change that? You make, make these stones into bread. This, is, this temptation is about appetite. Jesus um, is being confronted to say, are you going to use your power as the son of God to fulfill your own appetite? Or will you trust in your relationship with God, the father who is leading you through this experience for a reason? This is experiencing for your purpose for mission and ministry. So Jesus uses the scriptures in Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, where Moses and Israel were wandering in the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. And he says, yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So I wanted you to actually start the sermon by picturing yourself for a very specific purpose. When we picture ourselves, we are seeing a vision of ourselves through our own lens, right? It's how we see ourselves. But we know that sometimes memories can be wonky. When you share with your parent or a sibling about an event, And you're both like, hey, remember this, remember this? And one of them says, that's what? That's not what I remember. That's not how that happened. It's because we're experiencing things through our own vision and our own, um, you know, our own picture of ourself. So our needs, our desires, our experiences are the things that shape us. These are our appetites. Hunger is one of the strongest drives, human drives that there, there is. And so it's really hard to ignore that sort of drive. It's a feeling that can be really real. So hunger is a real feeling based on the fact of whether or not you have enough food. Or hunger can be based on the fact that you're choosing to not have enough food. You have this rumble in your stomach because, well, you realize you need to get to pre-Christmas weight or for some pre-COVID weight, right? You have this rumble. 
But hunger also is a feeling based on sometimes boredom, sometimes stress. But it's still a feeling and it's so hard to put that feeling aside and to deny it. So Jesus was truly hungry. He was famished, it says. But Jesus went to God to determine the validity of that feeling. He was hungry, but he wanted to ask the question, are you gonna keep me hungry forever? Is this feeling based on my experience or are you doing something? So he was testing his feeling against the validity of God's plan. His hunger was just temporary. Yes, food does give us nutritional benefits. And I think when we eat, we get nutritional benefits. I think it's important to eat, right? But it's a feeling sometimes about other things. And so when Jesus um, is asking this question, he's revealing that we actually don't have much control over our lives. We think we do by eating, it keeps us alive, or not eating, it doesn't keep us alive, right? But in some ways, Jesus is saying, yes, but is that living? Is that living? And so we live by God's word. We live our feelings in light of God's word. Jesus takes a picture of himself and he conforms it to God's will and God's word. Jesus stood on God's word instead of asking God to conform to his own feelings. I feel this way, God, so shouldn't you meet my needs right away? So the question we have to ask this morning is, are you conforming your feelings to God's word and his ways? Or are you basing uh, your feelings to react? You're reacting because those are your feelings. Now, I know that might be a jolt to your sensibilities because we are so much in uh, a culture that says feelings really matter. And as soon as you're talking to somebody and they say, but I feel this way, it sort of can shut down a conversation because we've elevated feelings as the most important. But are you allowing your feelings to define you? Are they taking first place and priority over anything that God is saying? Second Corinthians says, therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Jesus was crucified so that we could die to our old selves. Our old selves were ruled by feelings, appetites, and desires. And we no longer live in that. We live in, out of new creation. We are new creations, and we don't have to live out of that definition of old creation. This is how we grow with Jesus. This is how we grow upward with Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian, to be Christian. This is maturity. It's conforming um, to God's word, conforming and trusting that no matter what we feel like, the only thing that matters is really what God is saying about how we feel. And so there's always this thing that we have to think about. Are we conforming to God's word? Or are we asking him to conform to us? Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of this world, and in a moment of time, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and the authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, and I will give it to you if you will worship me. Now notice the phrase here is, I will give you these kingdoms because they are mine to give. 
So the devil knows that Jesus sort of is gonna go to God's word. That's what he does in the first temptation. So he takes God's word and he twists it a bit. Right, he gives us, this authority is mine to give. Because when the devil offers this authority, it's because what happened when we stopped being image bearers, when we fell away from God, when we turned away from God, we actually gave up our authority as image bearers. As image bearers who walk and do the will of God. And so in some ways, we turned that over to the devil and we said, go ahead, have these kingdoms and shape these kingdoms and do whatever you want because we will just be with you instead of being what we're called to do in Christ. But the devil was not the rightful ruler of any of these kingdoms. He never was, he never will be. God has the ultimate authority over all the kingdoms of the world. So it's never, it was never the devil's to give. So this second temptation is about ambition. Does God have the ultimate authority in the world? Right? Does God have the ultimate authority in the world? And are we worshiping and serving him alone? This is godly ambition is the question. And Jesus replies again from Deuteronomy, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. See, Jesus' ambition was for humanity to reclaim their rightful um, authority as image bearers, as people who walk in the name of God and do the things that God has asked us to do? Are we rightfully representing God to the world? And so he was so concerned, that's what godly ambition is. It's conforming our work to God's work, to God's ways, to God's word. Now ambition is a super challenging thing in our culture because um, it's just the water we swim in, right? Since you were three years old, five years old, 10 years old, 21 years old, probably even 40 years old, people have been asking, so what do you wanna do when you grow up? What are you going to be, right? In other words, we're really asking, so what's your ambition? Are you ambitious? Do you have ambition for power or for money or for glory and fame? What is your ambition? And we sort of can evaluate a child even based on their answer. When we hand over our authority as image bearers, as co-rulers with Christ in order to get ahead, what we're doing is we're really elbowing our way, other people out of the way to get our own ambition, our own needs met, right? I think when we talk about our own ambition and we do it in our own strength, it's when we lie and we cheat and we gossip and we do the things to tear other people down instead of relying on God's way to bring about what he's called us to do. And I think as soon as we sort of succumb to that, we've succumbed to this temptation. When we hand it back over and we just say, oh, you know, I have to do this to get ahead. I have to have this ambition. I have to reach for this, no matter the cost of anyone else, no matter the cost to anyone else, in whatever manner you want it done, then we've succumbed to this temptation. To conform to Jesus, we need to walk in his word. He told his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? 
This is Jesus' definition of ambition. So for us, what does it mean to take up our cross? What does it mean to have godly ambition? And what does that have to do with taking up a cross? Well, I believe it has to do with the fact that because our ambitions need to be crucified daily. We need to be asking the question, am I doing this, even if it's a really great thing, even if it's a churchy thing, even if it's a missional thing, am I doing it because I want the glory, I want the fame, I want my needs to be met? It's a super fine line, and when you really start to think about it, you start to say, am I doing these things for me, or am I really doing it because God has called me into his ministry and his work, and I'm expected to glorify him in this? It's about when we get super self-centered. It's when we think that we're the priority and not God's work. When we judge everything about our ambition based on us. So crucifying our ambitions and holding uh, to Jesus is how we grow upward with, with, with Jesus, right? This is growing upward with Jesus. It's a maturing of our faith because it's what it means to be Christian. We are part of a Christian, compassionate Christian community, and that's defined because we are people who live by the cross. We are people who recognize that the cross asks us to crucify those ambitions, to ask God to say, you know what? I have to die to those things. Help me kill them off in my life because I'm living by my own ambitions and not yours. So this leads us to the last temptation. Now, the devil uses scripture in his own way. So the devil has caught on that Jesus is going to start quoting scripture. So uh, the devil quotes Psalm 91 and says, He took him to the highest point of the temple and says, if you are the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect and guard you. This third temptation is about approval. Now, can you imagine in the marketplace, you are standing in this marketplace. It's a very busy place. uh, Tons of people around. And you look up at the top of the, the Uh, temple, which is about 90 feet in the air, and you see a man jump off and float down and land, right? Your approval ratings would go sky high. Like, this guy, he would be higher than Caesar. He would be more important than the Pharisees. He would be greater than anyone else that they knew. I mean, talk about great PR right away. Everyone would approve of him. They would say, you are something. But he didn't do that. Jesus responds, you must not test the Lord your God. As we read through the Gospels and we read through Jesus' life, so much of the time it seems like Jesus heals and he says, be quiet. Or he feeds 5,000 and then goes away and nobody can find him. Or goes off and prays by himself. He's always having the attention off of himself. He's not actually concerned that the crowds approve of him. In fact, they get angrier and angrier and angrier because they can't put their idea of whatever they think Jesus should be onto Jesus. Jesus is not concerned about their approval of him. He's only concerned about the Father's approval of him. You are my beloved son, and that's all he needed. I think this is the one of the hardest places that we uh, face when we're dealing with temptation, approval. 
right? And, and sometimes I think about it as a Jeopardy game. Remember Jeopardy and the, the, the things um, at the top, the categories change all the time. And I think sometimes we get up in the morning and we're like, who are we based on my job or based on what I'm wearing or based on who likes me or who doesn't like me? Um, because we are still so part of a system that says you should be shaped by everybody else. Um, and so we get really busy trying to conform to whatever category flips up at the top of the day. Now, uh, last week, Pastor Lyle uh, touched on this too, um, but our children are facing uh, this sort of temptation, this, this um, deal of approval times 10, 10 times 10 times 10, much more than uh, other generations have ever experienced it. Because of the social media, because of the aspect of being global, it's constantly coming at them. And it's telling them that they can be anything they want to be. They can change anything they want. They're saying, you should be happy. Do whatever makes you happy. Everyone should conform to your ideas, your feelings, and your sense of self. So no wonder why our children are so anxious and confused, that there's no guidelines, there's no like bumpers, remember in the bowling, you know, when you're bowling, there's, there's no way to keep your ball in the alley. There are no guide rails on the roads. If you are in the business of having to remake yourself every single day based on other people's categories of fashion, of ideology, of trends, of, of popularity, constantly switching, uh, it's sort of impossible. What they're being asked is, please conform to me as I conform to you. It's like, it's not even a cycle. You can't even connect it. So what if... Instead of a Jeopardy board of a thousand categories, we needed another tool. So we grow up with Jesus by living into God's approval of us based on Jesus. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. We need a different tool. I think we need a tool like a mirror. I think we need to hold up a mirror like this and look at it and see Jesus. Are we seeing Jesus? What does Jesus look like? And then how do I reflect that? That's the only tool we need for approval. Even before the world, before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. At Christ Church, we define Christian based on Jesus' ways and his works and his words. And as we continue to get this sense of direction through the next uh, couple of weeks, Pastor Van is going to be exploring more and more about this word Christian and what does it mean and how do we explore it here at Christ Church. It's not based on our feelings or our ambitions for glory or our desire to have everyone love us. Instead, it's the work of a community who examines and re-examines our lives with that mirror in mind, with Christ in mind. So I want us to actively engage this morning with this. And like I do with the kids, I want to ask you, what is God saying to you today? And part of that idea of walking, uh, you know, taking up our cross means that sometimes when you're in the midst of temptation, you realize you can't carry that cross alone. 
You need your neighbor. You need your community. You need to be able to confess and say, I'm struggling. I'm having a hard time. Will you help carry this with me? And so this morning, I want us to carry our burdens together, to come to a time of repentance. And I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand and, uh, and repent. And I was going to do this like, oh, I could do it with your eyes closed and, you know, but I want you to be able to experience what it means to be in community, repenting together in order to walk with each other. I mean, anything about our appetites, our ambitions, and our approval is so tough to deal with. I know that when I get up in the morning, even on a Sunday morning to preach, I think about my outfit. I think, am I gonna say all the right words? I think, are people gonna like it or not like it? It is just a struggle all the time. So you're not alone. None of us are alone. So this morning, um, as we come to communion, um, I want to think, uh, I want us to do this. So I would like you to raise your hand if you want to actively uh, repent in this. So if you have ever um, struggled with your appetite now, your appetites, any sort of appetites now or in the past, would you raise your hand with me? Will you repent of any time that you have now or in the past struggled with your ambition? Raise your hand. If you have now or any other time struggled with that need for approval. So we come to the table this morning uh, repenting. And we come to this table this morning because on the night that Jesus took this bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took this cup and he said, this cup is the blood of my new covenant. And it's being shed so you don't have to live the old way. You don't have to live in the old self. This is new life. And I'm shedding it. So do this in remembrance of me. And do it until I return. This is a remembrance of my death. So as you come this morning, we are reminded that this is the Lord's table. He has invited you to come and receive. We don't take communion. We actually receive communion. This is God's gift to us. If you're finding yourself this morning that you are following Jesus and this is just a good reminder that your life is found in Christ, come to this table. If this is the first time you've ever heard that Christ wants to give you life and wants to take uh, all your burdens on, confess that to him and come to the table. We are being invited to be refreshed and renewed, for our sins to be removed from the east to the west, because Jesus has done this for us. We are deeply loved. We are deeply cared for. He is faithful to his word. So come this morning, come and receive.